my guest today on the podcast, the great Robert Bruce Burnham, Portland artist, band leader, composer extraordinaire. It's the 525 Records podcast. Robert, how are you? I'm good, man. It's good to see you. I haven't you? seen you in so long. When was the last time we saw each other? Uh, I don't even know. Probably like two years ago, something like that. Probably like in this house, barbecue, backyard, something like that. Well, uh, I live in Vegas. Uh, you're an avid poker, poker player and gambler. Is that, so that, is that the last time we saw each other? Well, I was thinking before you came over of the time that you came to Vegas. I don't know. It was five years ago, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And uh, you were staying behind the MGM. We wound up in the MGM cash game. Yeah, that signature, that, that hotel there is good. And I was pretty broke at the time, but I, I think I bought in for two or 300. Yeah. And we were just sitting there, one, two blinds, you know, on the same table. It was great. It and was then fun. Yeah. I cut an ace king. Uh, I think I was in the <laughs> small blind. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I cut an ace queen. And, uh, you know, it went raise, 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 you know, pre flop maybe two right. or three times. And, uh, guy went in over the top and uh, i just i just had this gut instinct i know he doesn't have a pair and uh fuck it why not i'm gonna go ahead and call it it felt like a bluff and uh, he turned over an ace king right that's and, right uh, such is life that's called poker i guess right yeah but uh, when was the last time you went to vegas it's probably been that was probably the last time no i went uh halloween three years ago four four years ago yeah, and then what would uh, you gotta fill me up to speed with i the, miss vegas I like Vegas. Yeah. I need to go down to Vegas. It's a trip now, but... Uh, well, weed's legal now. It right? is. Because yeah. the last time I was there was right before, so that's good. Yeah. What uh, What does the poker scene like in Portland these days? Uh, it's dead. COVID. COVID killed it. Um, but I also don't have time to play, so there might be some stuff that's picked back up, but as far as I know, it's dead. I all the good clubs are closed, the Encore and all the those are done. Wow, yeah, man. I remember uh, going up to the center and uh, playing the 2-4 limit game. I think that's happening again. That was pretty popular. They yeah. had five ten. I mean, they had some like 440. You know? Decent stake yeah. games going. Yeah. It, it, it was a bunch of sharks coming in. It was pretty intense. You, It's not what you would expect from a little casino. I went and played the right before COVID hit or whatever. I went and played the, there's like a Thursday morning. It's a, might as well be called the old man. Uh tournament and uh they give you you know free breakfast with it for their for your 40 dollar entry or whatever and uh that's probably the last time i played any live poker wow i busted out like i don't know third round or something it sucked similar situation to yours actually ace queen yeah i mean sometimes you go with it sometimes you don't <laughs> yeah uh yeah, it's so much different, you know, when you're sitting across from someone, you can read their body language and, you know, get, yeah. get a real good feel for the action as the round progresses versus online, which is just so rapid fire. It's just math. You just play math poker online. Too. It is, yeah. You know. I, uh, I've been playing WSOP online, uh, low stakes, you know, $5 tourneys. Uh, every day, There's a it's like a five-hour tourney, $5 buy-in. I play their fake money part, but I didn't know they had a, a real money part. Yeah. I need, uh, I need to get on that. I came in sixth and uh, got like 80 bucks. It was great. That's, that's nice. <laughs> For five hours of work. Right. But it's pretty uh, pretty nice work. When you went to Vegas, what else would you gamble on? I'm just curious. So what would usually happen when I when I went to Vegas is I would go down to the MGM or where, whatever uh, casino I was staying in and uh, play poker. And I usually could come up, you know, three four $400 a night because there's a lot of people just playing stupid poker there. And uh, you just wait and wait for them, you know, and uh, I enjoyed that. But my my problem was, is I would on my walk back to the room, um, there's always like these these progressive jackpots above these stupid slot machines. And so, you know, I figured out, well, I'm, I'm up. And all of a sudden I would throw all my money in these stupid machines on the way back trying to win, you know, two hundred thousand dollars or whatever. And then you hear the casino's evil laugh yes. in your head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly yeah well i mean uh working down there for 20 years uh and dealing craps at various casinos like working at the nugget downtown i would hear all the time 
there was a cocktail waitress at Binion's that won like, I don't know, a couple million on a uh, Adams family progressive. And you would hear these stories like, Oh man, I always thought that would happen to me, but never did. I always thought I'd win the wheel of fortune. I've seen two wheel of fortunes hit with my own eyes. I think we played a little wheel of fortune. Just, I think we were talking about this, uh, when you, when that, uh, five years ago or whatever they're linked statewide and there's a website you can see every time one of them hits whether it's a quarter dollar five dollar whatever so i mean every week somebody's winning that thing uh i heard a, one guy hit it on the uh, at the airport right on the way out of town which is i mean how lucky is that guy right well hopefully he won he like lost a bunch of money and he was all sad and just putting his last dollar in that's how i always like to imagine that you know and then he wins you know whatever yeah, just like Vegas vacation. Yeah, hitting the keno. Right. <laughs> so, what have you been up to these uh, last few years, buddy? Uh, Man, I haven't seen you so long. I've been working way too much. I met a girl who uh, runs an estate sale company, and uh, I got involved in doing that. And uh, it's super fun, but it's a ton of work too. So, um, I just been doing that literally, you know, seven days a week, mostly. <laughs> Pretty much, that's it. Uh, you know, I played a play a little music. I got a little studio uh, to kind of away from the house. I was having trouble playing some music in the the house, like kind of finding space to uh, feel whatever creative. Um, but I got myself a little space now, and I don't know, playing more, taking some more time for myself as opposed to just working. So, dude, I don't want to rip open any open wounds, but whatever happened to the mansion that you used to have? <laughs> <laughs> right off the uh, it was grand dude yeah it was, a, it was two houses or whatever but uh my ex-wife uh still currently resides there oh okay yeah. so it didn't get sold or anything no it's... no she's waiting until it's worth three million she told me what i mean it's got to be close right no it's probably like 1.5 now which is just stupid because we paid 200 for it in 98 yeah you know but it was the you know the ghetto of Portland at that but time. a huge house on a huge lot yeah you know multiple garages a whole carriage house it's 2,000 square foot carriage house out back but it was falling in when we bought it you know and I like reshored up all the the posts and put a new roof on it dude you know the 525 house was an old you know Victorian it was built in 1898 what uh, I mean yours must have been even before that it was 1890 it was, it was like stamped on the, on the on the steps or whatever yeah, yeah. yeah. those guys could build fucking houses yeah. back then yeah it's a cool house I like that place I, uh, my ex isn't really, um, caring for it the way I would, I would hope, but you know, I'm sure she's having trouble, struggle with that, you know, so it's whatever. a humongous house. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of upkeep. Yeah. That wraparound porch. That thing was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Jamming in the basement too. I mean, that was, the, it was, you know, as far as basements go, we got into it last night about basements. Uh, I was ripping on basements, how bad they suck for <laughs> <laughs> especially large or tall people like us yeah but those were like 10 foot high ceilings in that basement exactly and, uh, and you know some decent sized little windows egress windows or whatever so got a little light it was it was a pretty good spot i was just ripping on all basements in general because every band seems to wind up practicing in a shitty low ceiling dingy basement <laughs> around here for sure and know. i was so excited when we finally got the 525 house which is uh, fifth and lincoln old you know two-story victorian house yeah, yeah. Uh, and just kicked everything out put the drums in the living room no television no couch no nothing just it's it was the jam house you know and uh, that's a beautiful thing those kind of things usually only last a minute though and that one did too. Yeah, they yeah. tore it down. Yeah. Sadly, there's a documentary coming up all about it called uh, "The Last Days of Five Five. Very cool. Very close to getting released. Vegas is open again, right? Like people are playing, and is everybody is everybody masked up. Like what's 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 the situation yes, down the there? The employees are fully masked. Um, what about the patrons? Patrons, it's a a false hypocrisy of uh, standards. From what I hear, uh, they pretty much just have to pretend like they're wearing a mask. So it'd be like all down, their nose all out and all that shit? Or? And they still eat smoke, cigarettes. <laughs> and uh, apparently every casino just reeks of weed now. So. <laughs> but I, what I've heard is like even at really fancy hotels like Win and Encore, um, the maids don't really want to clean the room. So your whole stay, they just want you to check out before they even go in there. 
that kind of sucks. Um, yeah. A lot uh, when an encore closed, except for on the weekends now. So um, they were have, really struggling. It's I mean it's hanging on by a thread. You know, there it's running, but it's running at a really reduced capacity. Well, it's because it's a bad idea. What the fuck are they doing? Like it's it's one or the other. If you yeah, ask me, yeah. you either got to open it up or you got to keep it closed and say, "Here's some assistance to help you through this." I mean, and everything's so fucking regulated down there that they could absolutely mandate masks and mandate you know go outside to smoke and you know to get some distance or whatever you know like they could fix that i think uh, what i've heard and this is probably a couple months old now but uh if you're outside the casino walking then it's really strict there's like security and everybody's yapping and there's a lot of uh, pressure but when you're gambling on a table what they've done now which blows my mind i'm so glad i don't have to be a casino dealer anymore (laughs) the uh, plexiglass in between each spot like a phone booth oh my or fucking god what i would call it is like a urinal right <laughs> so like blackjack you, it's like a bank teller you have to slide your money and cards under the plexiglass every player has a partition of so, plexiglass so what the fuck does that do though like the card you're not getting new cards every every deal well what are we doing here i mean <laughs> right right i mean as long as chips are a thing like we're gonna do <laughs> we're gonna right. do a fuck all but I recently started dating a girl again and uh, she's a casino dealer. She's a blackjack craps dealer. And um, a lot of them that are kind of like her, they wear multiple masks. So they'll, they'll start with an N95. Then they'll put at least one regular surgical mask around that, if not two or three. Then they'll put on goggles and on top of that, a shield. face shield. Right. Fuck me, man. That like I used to to go into MRSA uh, patient rooms and I had to gown up and all that stuff. But like it's almost worse to be a, a casino dealer than to be a phlebotomist in a hospital. You know where I was exposed to everything. It's always been a really dirty profession. Yeah, I mean before the pandemic, you know cleanliness. You had to fight tooth and nail. It's something that used, they used to do a lot. They used to really you know clean really well. There's you know porters everywhere and. People would go that extra mile to, you know, make sure the tables were clean. Um, but at least in the places I worked, it really took a hit. I mean, it, it was some of the most dirtiest tables you'd ever want to see. <laughs> it's one of the reasons I, you know, I couldn't. I kind of got burnt out after doing it for twenty years and had to quit. But yeah, I can see how that could be really gross. You know, but you know, you get sick every year. You build up a real. But see, this is the other ironic thing because I worked at the Flamingo and I know a ton of Vegas casinos that had big time norovirus. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which is very deadly. Um, I know people that have died. Like every time we had an outbreak, we'd have at least somebody that was really either dead or hospitalized. And, you know, um, and that normally doesn't happen, but in a, uh, like a nursing home or a school, like where there's a lot of like mixture of, you know, and so, but it, that basically shows what kind of level of exposures happening in that kind of situation, you know, it, it ran through everybody, all the employees, all the customers. I mean, there was nobody spared and they never for one minute, and this is the other ironic thing to me, uh, you know, for years, there's all these stories of people that would have a heart attack on a craps table. They would keel over and die in the middle of a hand and people would be so cruel and heartless that they would just keep gambling got to finish the over hand. a dead yeah. body yeah. until a stretcher was finally able there to be able to cart them out. I've personally, I've, uh, caught somebody that was collapsing on a crap table he didn't end up passing out but he just fainted for a minute he's an old dude happened all the time you know you'd hear all these stories and if you're working at all like seth he works at a hospital he hasn't had any quarantine vacation like oh, he's, no, fuck he's, no. <laughs> he's been going to work the no, whole time he would be fired if you took a quarantine vacation but this is a good segue into you've visited the state of montana quite a bit <laughs> yeah yeah i lived there for uh what I say is I lived there for a decade one winter. I remember you having to drive out there for some business-related activities. So my ex-wife's father, he um, he owned two houses. He was, a, he was a landlord in Portland. He owned two or three houses in the, uh, uh, whatever, the ghetto of Portland, northeast Portland at that time. And he sold them. Um like literally only two or three houses and he, he only sold them for 
you know, he paid 80 and sold them for one, you know, 200 or something like that. It was before the big boom in that area. And he took the profits from that and he bought like 35 properties in Butte, Montana. He, he was getting old and he couldn't really handle it. So, um, we went out there a couple of times. My ex uh, ran all his, his finances, the books of, of all of that. Um, and, uh, we talked about moving out there and then we ended up moving out there because the education system in Portland was different for special education because my daughter has a chromosomal disorder and, um, needed care. And we went and talked to the, what the schools were like in Montana and, we just mentioned our daughter and set up a meeting and all of a sudden there was like 12 people at this meeting and they were all into it and we're like, okay, we can move to Montana, you know? So we ended up moving out there for one school year. Um, but the place was horrible. So we had to come home. I'm, I forget where's Butte. Is it on the West or East? It's, uh, it's West, um, an hour and a half South of Helena. It's a, it's a cool state, but Butte, Butte was a town that was uh, mined really heavily um, when they, they struck gold and copper, and they, it's called the richest hill in, in the world or something like that. And uh, they raped this place, man. They just seriously just sucked all the life blood out of this entire town. And uh, there's, a, there's a thing called the Berkeley Pit, which is this uh, super deep lake um, that they, it's a, all acid. They like have to have a guy whose job is to run a boat all along this acid filled lake um, so that birds don't um, land on it. Wow. <laughs> but there's positives from it apparently because one year, this is what caused the boat driving guy to have a job was a flock of geese came in, they landed on it and they got fogged in and they stayed there too long and they died. But now, because those geese died in there, there's some weird, crazy algae growing in it that is supposedly uh, being tested and, and researched for cancer help somehow. Yeah. Well, I mean, hey. <laughs> that's, that's a real story. At, there's still abandoned mines in Nevada and California, the ghost towns. They're tourist attractions. Right. They just right. were booming, and then all of a sudden one day gone yeah, this town I, I wrote a record about it well this know. is i'm glad you mentioned it <laughs> yeah. i i would love to tackle your musical journey backwards okay starting with this record so the record is entitled butte sadness on an incline yeah what is that uh title i mean sadness on an incline like an ever-increasing amount of sadness is well that, it, it, that that's that's kind of uh whatever the symbolic meaning but it literally um, it was literal as well because Butte, Montana is on a hill. It's the greatest, you know, richest hill in the world or whatever. Um, and, um, the downtown part, um, or I guess they call it uptown. It's kind of the older, more, um, old houses because it was a very rich town. So there's some beautiful old Victorian homes. We bought one for whatever, $90,000, um, right by the uh, head stacks of these mines. And, um, it's cool, but it's, it's sad because they really have just sucked all the life out of everything around there and you can feel it. Like, I know that sounds weird or whatever, but like you can feel it. And so what is everybody just on the dole up there? Yeah. Dole and meth, you know, and, uh, and just doing their thing. And it, and it's, and it's sad. It's very, uh, it's very in intertwined, um, Butte is known around Montana as the kind of the party town. People go there to get fucked up and fight. Is it a college town? Mm, there is. A, there's a University of Montana in Butte. Okay. But the main main college is actually Missoula. But there is a, a, there's a college there. But it's not about that. It's just that that's where people go to like get really fucked up. St. Patrick's Day is a huge day there. And, uh. And Butte's known for fighting, like so. People would be out in the street fighting all the time. And, Great, yeah. It's, it's fucking. Uh, it's a it's a trip. Very very different for me. I didn't like it there at all. And I was working way too much there, because I, I had a job in Helena, so I would leave an hour and a half uh, before work, go and work at the VA up in in Helena, um, come home, and so that was like almost eleven hours or whatever, hour and a half each way, plus eight hours of work. Oh, no, I had lunch hours, so 12 hours. And um, 
And then I'd come home and have to do like something at, at those rentals that we were talking about. So I'd have to light a pilot light or, you know, go, go look at somebody's fridge or some shit. In the middle of winter. Yeah. 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 And is it is that where you wrote the majority of this record? So how, how I wrote that record was I had this little uh, recorder and in that drive from Helena to uh, Butte every day, just I would uh, I wouldn't listen to the radio or anything. I just let my kind of brain uh, come up with stuff, and I would whistle or hum it into the the recorder. Little lyric stuff would come, and I started sending those to Pat. And uh, we should say this is Pat Kern. Yeah, yeah, my friend Pat, and and he's a producer, and uh, you know we we collaborate really well on music, and and. Um, I've only met a couple of people in my life like that, and Pat is definitely one of them. He's my my friend. I miss him. I don't talk to him enough. He's got it made in the shade right now. Have I, you seen his Facebook? Dude, he works. He work. He worked his ass off to get what's going on, with bro. Him, he, yeah, you know, he's looking like the fucking genius because he, he now because he is a genius, dude. That's the thing. You I know? mean, yeah, you're off the grid with a solar powered studio, right? In you know california right. i mean in the desert i mean it's the best of both worlds no, he's 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 got it he, he was trying to talk me into buying some property down there and I, I fucking like an idiot i was involved in my my world at the time and didn't listen i should have listened though his his uh, studio goat mountain recording finally open uh it took a long time to build i mean i've been waiting with beta breath for the opening of this place he's finally doing sessions and tracking it no i know i saw that it's amazing do you it, listen to his radio show? I don't. I should though. It's I pretty should. good. Yeah, it's that. a real deal. He's it's an FM radio show that features local music from uh, I think they call it the Morongo Basin. Yeah, you know, but anyway, yeah. in that area, and he, he came through town with with a couple. I think a couple people who are from that area. Whatever, a year ago, two years ago, and I went and saw him, and the, the, those people were fucking great. So I'm, I'm I bet the uh, the the radio show is good. There's a there's a handful of artists that really uh, blow me away. The, one of them in particular is the, they're called the Adobe Collective. And I, I think they were some people I saw. Well, I guess they play with Pat on a tour, or they were in a band. Pat, I'm sorry, buddy, I'm butchering this, but yeah, it's the <laughs> local music showcase. I think it's uh, oh, what is it, 1077 or 1017? It's something like that. Yeah, yeah that but, sounds right. Uh, you know, um, man. Just in time for the end of the world, I'm going to be in the Mojave Desert, off the grid, in a solar-powered setup. (laughs) Yeah, Pat's Pat's a genius, dude. That's just true. Yeah, so I was sending these things back to Pat, and uh, and he's like, "Man, these are songs. You know, we can we can we can do this." And so we we started like uh, just talking about it. We, you know, I was writing stuff. I would write stuff out so I didn't lose it, and and which is is a different process for me because normally if i write start writing something lyrically i kind of kill the song if i actually write it down on paper um so um this was a new kind of process for me you know whistling into a little thing was a new new thing so this whole this whole process was was new and it, and it felt good if i could maintain my creativity hang out you know talk to my friend all all this kind of stuff so um and then uh, everything blew up in montana which, uh, thankfully really, cause I, it was miserable out there. And, um, we came back, I had the U-Haul packed and Hannah got out of school and two days later I was driving out of that town with my finger held high in the air. And, um, uh, we came back and I started talking to Pat like, he's like, we should do this then. And we, so we started like actually fleshing out the songs and, and making them make them real and making them a thing and talking about who's going to play on what and how it's going to be. And I started practicing with the people that I wanted to play on the, on it. And it was, it just all kind of came together and it was great. And before Pat started an off the grid solar powered studio in uh, a really awesome temperate climate, uh, he ran a studio here in Portland called yes. Perma Press, right. which was uh, right off Sandy Boulevard. Right behind Centaur. And uh, what is that? Katie O'Brien's? Yeah, Katie O'Brien's was around the corner. So, yeah. we, you know, the move yeah. was we'd go get breakfast and maybe a screwdriver or two. Katie O'Brien's. <laughs> I mean, he wouldn't, but we would. Yeah. And uh, for whatever we were there tracking. But it was a, you know, very compact, tight studio. Great board. Pat, of course, you know, doing it. And he made you know a lot of projects out of that studio until one day the portland gentrification condo craze caught up and uh they decided to build these high-rise condos right behind the studio which 
you know, there's no way to run a business while that's going on. I mean, I was here, whatever, eight months ago. It was still. Well, he couldn't record anything for sure. You know, there's all this construction stuff going on and all that stuff. So he left way earlier than everybody else. But I think everybody else is out there now. Centaur's out. Kitty O'Brien. Centaur's gone now? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, everybody, everybody's gone. Because there was a weed store there. I thought they'd be able to hang in. You know, they had all the money. I thought they could push back maybe. But uh, it's just it's it goes to show you. It's crazy. I mean, uh, you know. But. In the glory days when he still had a studio. Yeah, yeah. You did a lot of the tracking there. I I don't know. I'd love to, like, speculate how much records costs, you know. Uh, having spent a number of thousands of dollars on my own personal records, and some uh, of which are still unreleased. But Pat, Pat gave me the, the, the sweetheart deal on that stuff, though. You know, like, it, it cost something, but it wasn't anything that, that was bad. You know, I mean, I, I don't remember, like... I don't remember if I even thought about like the full number that I spent because it didn't really matter. You know, it was um, for me, I was trying to produce a piece of art. Like literally when I when I went to talk to the people who were uh, helping me design the the cover and the, the record itself and all that stuff. Like I wanted when you open that record for it to be a piece of art. And so I wasn't really thinking about the money part of it. I think this hill is too full of misery. I think this hill is too full of pain. I think this hill is too full of heartache for happiness to exist again. They reap this land. They dug it up and stripped mine and is taking all the love. They killed and made, they broke and stole. Is that the great Mark Breidenbach on piano? It definitely is, yeah. Yeah. The best best piano player around. Yeah, that's a good track. I forgot all about that one. Um, man. And, you know, everything we're talking about with the mining and... Yeah. I mean, it, yeah. if, if that's not what the song is about, man. It's what the song's about. Yeah. It, it, it was really weird. I wrote that when I was fully, like, fucking done with that city. 
and uh, done living there, done having to deal with all this shit. And all that is not the town's fault entirely. You know, I mean, definitely somewhat. But, you know, my, my ex and her family and all that fucking shit just was uh, like too much to bear. So it, it reflects in all of that. I don't know. There's, there's just sadness in that shit. You know, I don't know. And, and in that town, it feels like the rocks are permeated with it. You know, they can't escape. Yeah. The blood just doesn't wash away, man. You know, like the, the, that amount of sadness and misery just seeps in and it fucking stays. It's becomes sacred almost like a burial ground. Right. Yeah. That's actually a good way to say it. All right. Welcome to the 525 Records podcast. We're here to bum you out big time. (laughs) We're here to talk about mining disasters, people dying. Right. All kinds of uplifting music. All right, salted ground. I'm gonna play one more song off that record. Uh, it's another kind of slower one, but I like it a lot. It's one of my favorites. Uh, the album is Butte, Montana, Sadness on an Incline, by the great Robert Bruce Burnham, and the song is Track Eleven. She's all I want. That's some of my favorite shit on that yeah. record. I, uh, those trains ran right by Pat's studio, Permapress. And we set up a mic that sat out there for like, I think it was all night or, or two or three days. I'm not sure. Those yeah. trains also ran right by the 525 house. Yeah. You know, 5th and Lincoln, right off right. of the MLK Grand. The train tracks went right under the underpass. There's a new Mac station there now. Right, right. Um, we would hear them in the house all the time when we were recording. And I, too, tried like hell to capture them a lot of times i'm fascinated with train horns because the you can't really put a note on that right. train whistle right. it's like every note at the same time it's like and you know it may have a general overall root pitch but there's it's like if you tr- if you ever sit with a train horn or like i would be sitting around the house with a guitar i would hear the train horn and i would try to find the pitch and it's like every note worked. Right. It was the strangest yeah. thing. I don't even know. Do you know what is a train whistle composed of? I don't know. I don't know. It's some all. seriously magical secret shit, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah. It's, no, it's some kind of crazy major uh, harmony. Uh, there's there's something about it though that I just love though. Like it's it's uh 
and maybe it is some crazy weird you know harmony major whatever um but like i don't know it just it hits me right i like that thing it shouldn't be that soothing because there's a lot there's a heavy dissonance to it yet it's overwhelmingly major and happy at the same time as it's like (laughs) annoying and warning you hey there's a locomotive coming your way this is the point of a train whistle you know there's something soothing and hypnotic about it at the same time it's like oh yeah it's just you you hear it and you feel good yeah i i enjoy a a train that goes by at least at least every once in a while by your house like if you hear that and you're chilling in your house there's something really nice about that but we had this whole plan on how to capture that me and pat and uh and implemented it and then he he mixed it that's a couple different trains you know it's a whole whole thing there's almost uh, a binary where it's like one is higher than the other it's like a but seamlessly mixed Yeah, yeah it's beautiful it does cool things in headphones. So moving backwards through your musical journey, previous to the solo record, you were in a band for a long time. That band was the smokes. Yeah. Yeah. The smokes, uh, was my band for a long time. Um, and it, uh, came about by, I was in a band called, uh, barnacle and, uh, it just wasn't working out. I didn't feel like I was uh, doing the thing I wanted to do with music. And so uh, we broke up and I was kind of moping around for a while and I was most frustrated with the process in bands that um, kind of the democratic, you know, like, well, should we play that club? Well, I got to call, you know, three people, whether or not they, they think it's, it's cool. We should get, take that gig and you know, whatever. And, um, just all of that, you know, what's the name, what's the logo, what's the, what's it all going to look like? Can we, who called the booker, who didn't call the booker, all, all that nonsense. And, uh, I was kind of bitching about it and me and Pat, um, again, we're, uh, hanging out and he's like, man, um, you're going to start a band and you're going to call all the shots and, uh, and I'm going to be in it. I don't think any great band has ever survived with the rule by collective. Like somebody needs to be the guy. It, there's no forward momentum without somebody making some decisions and everybody else, like a football team piling in behind them to be the offensive line. Yes. The lead blocker. <laughs> that's very true. Um, and so that's what, what happened. And Pat, it was really Pat's encouragement to do it. That, that uh, helped me do it honestly. And, and the fact that he was going to be in my band. You know, I love Pat and I saw him uh, first with big Jim and I thought he was an amazing guitar player and, um, we'd become closer friends throughout the years. And, and, uh, the fact that he wanted to play in my band meant uh, a lot. It, uh, bestowed a lot of confidence in me and we, uh, we did it and, um, it was awesome. Those were the early years of the smokes. Yeah. We were called King size then. The later years of the smokes, um, Seth Gibson Mm-hmm. Was uh, who's also been on the podcast was a, the bass player yeah, in the Smokes. He's a great bass player, yeah. But yeah. Uh, all you five two five fans out there, um, if you're really if you're a hardcore five two five fan, you'll realize that the last thing we put out was a Smokes live record, the Smokes live at the White Eagle in 2010, and uh, of course yours truly happened to be guest spotting that night that's right flubbing a lot of notes but (laughs) nonetheless playing bass with you guys uh live um i was living in vegas that was a fun show yeah it's totally fun show and it's uh available on 525records.com i think one of the best tracks is winter time and i'm gonna play it right now because it's so awesome awesome
was a good time. My favorite line in that song <laughs> is uh, "Keeps me warm." <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. such a great song. And uh, the um, that was right at the end of the set. And as I recall, I'm dying to get your memory on this. What I remember is Blue Skies came up and uh, helped us on that song. Yeah, in yeah. particular, I believe Mike was playing all the lead guitar. I thought it was Pat. This is what I'm saying. I can't remember. It doesn't it sound like Pat to me. I thought it was Mike. No, it's, it's Pat. But he switched into smokes mode where he was kind of playing more more blues, blues okay. and stuff. Well, see, know. this is, you know, time yeah. fades the memory. Yeah, I'm pretty We're, sure it was Pat. We can ask him. Okay. You know. Yeah, it'll be a good bet. <laughs> it was one of those guys. That, that, uh, that like, falling run that you're doing in the, uh, in the solo there is rad. Yeah. yeah, like it, and it, uh, and I don't know if I noticed it before this listen, honestly. And I've heard that recording a few times, so it's one of my favorite smoke songs for sure. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that's pretty cool, dude. That show was uh, I Can I Can'ts, mm-hmm. Blue Skies for Black Hearts, and, and smokes. the Smokes. Yeah, it was a great show. And we, and we talked about it on a podcast before how Blue Skies loved to middle because they could get in, get out, pack the van, be gone, yeah. you know, that way they're not opening. They get the bulk of the audience, and they were so. Well, it really was a sweet spot, and I was fine with them them doing that, being yeah. being that at that show, especially you know. A lot of White Eagle shows. Yeah, a lot of White Eagle shows. A lot of tonic shows. Yeah, a lot of tonic shows. Where else? Uh, there was a period where we paid the Buffalo Gap. That was a weird show. That sucked a little bit. Where was the residency? Um. No, no, those clubs. Somewhere much. it was yeah, somewhere on the know. west side where you you had a residence. That, 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 that's the Buffalo Gap. Okay, where we played there. It, that's it was, the stairs. Yeah, the stairs. They were, they those stairs were brutal, especially with that roads. You know, we would we would play with the roads then, and that thing was it was like it would it was like at least two of us, but better it was uh, three because one guy at top and the two guys at the bottom could push it up. That thing was so fucking heavy. Well, did you hear the Adam? It was worth it. Alcala podcast. I did. Yeah. Well, he has a whole. We had a whole thing <laughs> about the stairs at the Buffalo Gap and how the roads in particular was really tough to load up. It there. was a nightmare, dude. But it was worth it, and we had lots of fun in that show at that that little weird uh, place. It was just a little tiny dining room that they. I think they served you know beer in or whatever during the day, lunch maybe. And uh, maybe ten tables, um, but it would it would be it would fill up and people were having a good time. You know, people would ask us play one that I could dance to, and I would ignore them and then play another song. As you should. <laughs> but this is like when you listen to the Smokes live, you you are belting out songs with like a really big beefy resonant voice and this is the two shades of rob that i think exists because on the song we played before from your solo record when you you hit that high register and you sing soft it's like oh wow there's a vulnerability there that is really impressive and it really matches the song well however anybody that's seen the smokes live is used to this you know guttural belting you know right projecting right. singing but that's what that that's what that band was for i mean but i, I played softer songs in that band too but uh but uh, yeah I, I guess i explore that part of my voice a little more with with just playing my guitar you know it's acoustic it's stuff it's an incredible stuff. dynamic range you know you, you can on one hand be like vocal fry and just belting out blues numbers and on the other hand you can play a softer song get into a higher register sing sing incredibly soft and subtle and you know those are the two sort of sides you know the ends of the spectrum if you will Uh, singing is is a weird thing you know because it uh you know i'm 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 pretty shy though what you're saying doesn't lead to that but um and i struggled with singing a lot i i kind of um um held back and there came a point where I had to go, I don't care anymore what people think or whatever. I don't know. I, I stopped thinking about it. And that's when I, I felt like I could kind of sing. I think I, I have this memory of going to PSU in the cafeteria. <laughs> those lunch shows, those were great, man. They'd pay us, I don't know, it was like 200 bucks. But Pat was on guitar. This is an early Smokes lineup. <laughs> yeah. 
Those those were fun, man. Those I love those shows. And it's a cafeteria, PSU, <laughs> Portland nope, State. University. Nobody pays attention to you really at all. But there's a band, and everybody's eating lunch. Yeah, and you no, guys are up there. Yeah, it was fun. No, no, and and people did pay attention. There were plenty of people who came up and and you know said that we were good or wanted to buy a record or get a sticker or you know any of that kind of stuff. Get on our email list or you know. Um, but uh, I liked those gigs. They were during the day. I always tried to plan a, another show for that night. And then we, we'd basically hang out all day. You know, we'd play the, the morning or lunchtime show and then uh, have a show at the whatever, the con or whatever later or the tonic or, you know, wherever. And uh, those were good days, you know, just hanging out, playing music. Uh, I'm going to rock one more song from Smokes Live at the White Eagle. It's available for free on 525records.com. It's the hottest, latest, freshest release from the underground. This is the opener. If we can do director DVD commentary style here, I mean, the thing I've listened to more than anything on this on this recording is uh, the women in the audience. You, you know that sort of middle aged woman. She's thirty nine or yeah, maybe forty. That's about right. Yep. And just the the uncontrollable yeah <laughs> you know that's to me the smokes uh, i saw that over and over again at your guys' shows yeah, these women yeah. just at the front of the stage <laughs> they're not the young teenage girls right but they're like the you know single moms out for a night or whatever and they're just uncontrollable yeah <laughs> You're listening to The Smokes live at the White Eagle, recorded in uh, 2010. The thing I love most about that song is how measured and calm and composed your, your vocals are, mixed with Mark, who is <laughs> a hundred. freak out, yeah. It's awesome. To me, this is Mark's like penultimate live performance. And the other thing about this, too, is Adam really excels live. Oh, yeah. You know, having recorded Adam and seeing him play live... It's like he really excels when it's, it comes it's, to the it's live ni- show. It's nice to see Adam uh, let it loose a little bit. 
You no, know, he uh, he in the in the studio. He he's a he's a deep thinking guy, and so he's he's really thinking about his parts, and he's thinking about um, you know that that break and how it's going to be, and it's it's awesome because he's he's reliable. Like I know that that we've practiced a bunch of times, and we we are going to hit that break at exactly that same moment every fucking time in the studio and he is mr execution yes he is not fucking around and but, i love that about him but there's there's a there's a double-edged sword to it because sometimes i don't want to fucking hit that break right there because it's feeling really good right here or whatever you know and it's hard to communicate that with him because in in especially in live because he's just doing it but in this he's not like he's not calculating it as hard he's letting it go a little bit but he's he's definitely going to hit that spot because that's he's been working on making sure he's going to hit that spot when we hit the stage you know so going after it i just that was awesome. i mean mark has never been looser on yeah, stage than yeah. he was in this performance because i don't think anybody even knew i was recording <laughs> and uh here i am you know he's, i'm asking i'm asking pat about mic placement like oh dude what should i do he's like, oh bro just x y you know and it uh, it's not the greatest recording in the world there weren't the greatest mics it, it's not the best performance well, there's all kinds of flubs no 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 it is the greatest performance <laughs> and it's the shittiest recording and that's what i love most you've heard it on every episode of this podcast i love it when a song is so good it transcends the quality of the recording that captured it but to me that is just ah oh, it's like the easter egg that was a good night, man. That was a good night. Yeah, and you know, Mark was so loose in that horner on stage. It just sounded so good, you know. And like, I'm always torn between, you know, that that song in particular. I wasn't on bass. I was off stage. It was just you on guitar, Mark on keyboard, and Adam on drums. And that was like the Doors. It has that Doors kind of sound. Yeah, totally. You know, where yeah. the low end is sort of, it, it's all on Mark. Yeah, that's you know? what I mean. Making he make make that uh, left side work harder. But you know? just like a lead blocker opening up a hole for yeah. the running back to run through <laughs> right. that's kind of what happens when you have a bass player leave the smokes it opens up a door for mark to sort of just run in for the touchdown run right through yeah and just stand around while he scores buckets it's great <laughs> yeah it's fun to watch for sure yeah that was awesome let's talk about supernatural studios we spent a bunch of money at that studio. Yes. Is there anything <laughs> better than dropping ten thousand dollars at was, a really nice studio? Yeah, it was it was a little ridiculous, but it was fucking awesome. Worth every penny. Yeah, it was awesome. Those were those were great days. Yeah, you know, it had like a kitchen 
We'd like bring food and fucking you know make up breakfast uh, you know and I've never recorded record, there record in, in uh, you know and then go record in this beautiful room and it opens up to the these huge windows and it's all like wood you know and uh, any view of the of the the woods or whatever and this big beautiful grand piano and separation booths and you know the whole thing and the the uh, whatever the mixing room is uh, like up so it's overlooking this kind of sunken. Um, place. It's a really nice place. Just to a world class studio. Yeah, just a really nice place to record. Like you, you could yeah. fart in there, and it would be a gold record. <laughs> yeah, and we had we had a lot of fun on on that making that record. And then, so Pat, at this point, what is his role? He's an engineer, but is he also he's playing on tracks? And... He, yeah, he's he's the man. He's making it all happen. You know, I'm finding the money to make it happen, but he's really making it happen. You know. Because I don't know how to run those things, you know. I, I know how to listen to stuff and and give my my two cents or whatever. Um, but he he made that happen, you know. He called the the guy, talked to him about the board, how to you know the Neve sidecar, all all the all the stuff that was there, and how we were going to use it and what we could use. You know, they had a, you know, they had all the the locker full of all the microphones and the, and the thing full of all the effects and the, and the, the house guitars are beautiful and the, and the, you know, big, amazing grand piano, like I said, and I don't know. It was just, it was a really nice place to work, but Pat, Pat really made is the one that made that like actually a possibility. And he's working with a house engineer at supernatural or is no, we just freelance. Yeah. We just rented the room and Pat, knew how to make that room work well there's you know there's the most amazing cymbal wash on this track that i'm about to play
listen to that tape hiss all day long it sounds like everything sounds so good on that song no, that, that that's that piano that grand piano Dude, it really sounded so beautiful the drums and that cymbal wash the drums are made we got some great tones out of that room, the vocals sure. are so dry and so perfect pat and, pat was on fire there but like, it's you know because he, he cared about what we were doing and and he lend his whatever full talent still strength of his talent at it and it uh uh, yeah, I'm proud of those that stuff for sure. And I mean, it's such a great song. You know, it's it, the thing about you guys. My guilty pleasure is it's it, it hits you like a shot of booze. The smokes <laughs> uh, or uh, any kind of Robert Burnham song. You, the warm, fuzzy feeling you get after doing a shot of whiskey. That's kind of it. The smokes and drinking go hand in hand to me. <laughs> now maybe I have a drinking problem. I don't know, but or a smokes problem. One, the one or the other. Yeah. But Robert, it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Um, for the five two five super fans, we're going to continue for a Patreon bonus. You should definitely check out the five two five records Patreon for all kinds of awesome bonus content, video footage. Five two five records dot com. We've got the uh, Klaus Fluoride tribute Dead Kennedy stickers for sale. They're going like hotcakes. So if anyone out there is interested in a vinyl copy of that solo record, Butte, Montana, Sadness on an Incline, how do they? How do I, as a fan of Robert Burnham, purchase that vinyl? You could uh, contact me on Facebook, as lame as that is. I'm working on getting it uh, in more places and me uh, uh, internet distributed, uh, whatever that means. Thanks for listening to the Factory 5 Records podcast. Uh, Robert Bruce Burnham. Check him out. Rob, thanks, Ellie. You got him, man. Great time. Good podcast. It's like being in a band again.